Great to see you here. My name's Bruce. If you are new with us, Senior Minister, and uh, we're going to open up God's Word and look at it. I'm just getting myself organised. Now, while I'm getting myself organised, I want you to, just with the person next to you, um, discuss this question. What's been the biggest cost for you in following Jesus? What's been the greatest cost for you? So just have a think about that. And uh, if you are feeling comfortable enough, just have a chat with the person next to you. Okay. I'm going to pray. Father, we do come before you now because we want you to speak to us. And Father, the most important thing at this moment is that we hear your voice and you help us get clarity on what it means again to follow Jesus and Father fill our hearts with faith and also obedience so that we might serve you with joy in this world faithfully and so as we come to your word speak we pray in Jesus name amen well that's a very important question to ask and I know it's a very searching one um, kind of as we start to open up God's word But it's a very important one and it's one that I want us to look at today because we're looking at the whole issue of counting the cost. Now it was a long reading uh, and it's worth saying at 8 o'clock I got halfway through my sermon and I stopped because I was up with my time. So I'm going to just try and do half a sermon but that's still normal time, okay? (laughs) And I really want to focus in on this question of what does it mean to count the cost in following Jesus and I don't know what your conversations were in terms of what's been the biggest cost. Uh, When I was first spiritually awakened to the reality of the fact that there might be a God and the Christian faith, I was about 19 or 20. And I remember being confronted with a very real dilemma. Uh, The first part was this. um, I saw for the first time in my life some people who were genuinely Christian and alive in Jesus. And it was very confronting because there was this, if I can say, attractiveness about them. When you see a person who you've known for quite a number of years transformed overnight, literally, they've gone from a person who was insecure, 
who had issues to someone who is confident and alive, still letting you know that they're struggling with the issues they struggled with, but in a very different way. And they say it's Jesus. And then you meet another person who, again, testifies to the reality that they are who they are because of Jesus. And you see this attractiveness to the Christian faith. You think, wow, I want what they've got. But yet, in seeing that transformation, I had read enough of the Bible in my youth growing up to know that, well, if I wanted this Jesus, he comes, if I can say, with a price tag. Uh, There's a cost involved. And you have to be willing to pay that price. And the price is, you've got to let go of your life and let him be in control. And the problem I found was this, I liked Jesus, but I didn't love Jesus. Um, I admired him, but I didn't worship him. What I loved was actually alcohol. Uh, What I loved was parties. What I loved was going out with my mates and having a good time on our definition of what a good time was. Uh, What I really loved was the sense of which I was the captain of my own destiny. I was in charge. And this Jesus who was so attractive was incredibly challenging. Because you see, I was lost and lacking direction in my life and I saw the purpose he'd brought into people's lives. Yet I still wanted to be in control of my meaningless life (laughs) and out of control life. Sounds strange and stupid to say at one level but it was very real that though your life is out of control, lacks purpose, you still want to be in control of that lack of purpose and out of controlness. And the thought of giving my life to Jesus, quite frankly, scared me. What would he ask me to do? What would I end up being? And if I knew then that I was going to be this, that was a scary thought. What would my friends think? That was a very real issue because my friends weren't big fans of Jesus. Uh, If you know some of my story at school, we once helped the Christian group experience the Bible reading which was on the Christians being stoned by throwing rocks at them at Crusaders and we thought we were helping them in their discipleship. That's the kind of group I used to hang out with. The cost was too great, I thought at that time. And so I began to investigate. Because you see, while I knew there was a lot to lose, I could also see there was a lot to gain. Now I want just to open up to the passage we looked at this morning. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, page 1027. Because that question is put before us. Are we willing to count the cost? in following Jesus. Are we willing to count the cost in following Jesus? Now, if you have a literary background, you may be interested to know that we're at the turning point of Luke's Gospel. Now, Mark's Gospel, which is familiar to a lot of us, turns on the confession of Jesus being the Christ. I think the turning point here is different. The turning point 
is Jesus is now heading to Jerusalem. Have a look at verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Up until this point, Jesus has been introduced to us as the one who has been prophesied from years before. The Old Testament prophets spoke of the Messiah to come. John the Baptist is also there announcing this prophetic child. He is the one we've waited for. He takes the stage of history and begins to minister in a way that you would expect of the promised Messiah, but yet there's more to him. There's this mark of God about him. And the crowds flock as he heals the sick, as he casts out demons, as he raises the dead and as he proclaims the kingdom of God. But now the turning point in the story begins. He must go to Jerusalem. The time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. And that language is full of imagery of both him being lifted up on the cross but triumphantly at the end of Luke's Gospel, lifted up into heaven as he returns to the Father. And so the time has come, the focus of his mission is now. He must go and die for the sins of the world and be raised to life, conquering Satan and bring eternal life. And so the language there is very strong. He resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. His mission is before him. And I want you to observe these two passages uh, at the end of chapter 9. The first shows us this. Um, In terms of the question of what does it mean or what is the cost of following Jesus, well, the first thing is this, opposition. We follow Jesus in a hostile world. Let's have a look at what it says. At that time, uh, 52, he sent messengers on ahead of him who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Um, There's already been opposition from within Jerusalem, from within Israel, from within, if I can say, his own people to him. So this promised Messiah is welcomed by the crowds, yet... The religious leaders have already shown their hand. There's opposition to him. But what's interesting here is he's rejected not just by Israel but by Samaria. And this begins a theme that will run through to the end of the book of Acts which is Luke's second volume. It is significant. It's not just the Jewish people who did not want him as their king. It's also the Samaritans. And what we discover by the end of Luke's gospel volume 1 and 2, is that actually all the nations are opposed to Jesus. Uh, There is opposition to Jesus and the message about him from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the world. People are opposed to him and you see this fascinating response of the disciples. Now before we think about the response, Um, think with me of the Old Testament because you see that would have been their grid of thinking about how God works. Now one of the famous prophets who was spoken of as coming back is Elijah. And Elijah was one of the great ones. Um, His ministry is one of the great, if I can say, ministries in the Old Testament, uh, a very miraculous ministry. 
And he had a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And it was kind of a, a, a shootout on the mount. And they had this sacrifice, who would call fire down from heaven? Well, Elijah was the one who won in this sacrifice shootout and the fire came down and not just consumed his sacrifice but all the prophets. It was this incredible event. And you can see this is in the back of the mind of the disciples. Lord, we're out in this kind of pagan country of Samaria and they're rejecting you. Call fire down! And you can hear this kind of uh, Old Testament, you know, preacher that's at work. You know, we want the fire of the Lord to descend on these godless people. And the text says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. And I don't know what he said, but I'm sure in the back of his mind was this thought. I am going to Jerusalem to die for this people, not just for Israel. I'm going so that they can be forgiven, to die on a cross, for they know not what they do. And they move on. But it is significant to recognise that part of being a Christian will necessarily involve conflict. And I think most of us don't like conflict as a general rule. I don't particularly like it. Uh, I much prefer to get on with people. Uh, I think that's our general experience. I was talking to someone in terms of leadership and conflict resolution. 80% of people, he said, uh, are conflict avoiders. Uh, It's a natural thing. But we follow a Jesus who is not liked in the world. Uh, There is a version of him that is liked, uh, the version that he loves children, uh, the meek and mild Jesus who is warm and welcoming, and that he is. Uh, But the Jesus that we'll see today is a very confronting Jesus that the world does not like, uh, a very uncompromising Jesus, a very absolute Jesus who says, if you want to follow me, this is the way. The world does not like the Jesus who says, I am the only way to the Father. Apart from me, there is no way. And so the disciples move on to another village. And as they're walking along the road, verse 57, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And so we see this second passage describing the cost of being a follower of the Lord Jesus. And it's a very important passage that we're going to look at. You see, he's just been rejected. And Luke, uh, with no accident, now describes what does it mean to follow this man who is rejected by his people? What is the cost of that? Now, no doubt in my mind, uh, this man has seen something of the ministry of Jesus. Something of his healing power. Something of his incredible authoritative teaching. Something of the wonder of Jesus, the attractiveness of Jesus. And he sees him and says, look, can I come and follow you? Now, that phrase uh, is not familiar in our context of, I want to go and follow a leader. I know it's on Twitter, you can follow your leaders, but it's not in that sense. Um, A rabbi would have followers. Uh, They would be, if I can say, recognised as a wise person, authoritative teacher, and you would literally say, I'm going to follow you. And you would walk in the footsteps of your Pharisee. 
And so this man comes up, he wants to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. He's seen that he's got other followers. Uh, We'll see very shortly there's 72 of them that he sends out. So there's not just the 12, uh, there's now quite a gathering of people who are following. And this person says, Lord, can I follow you? And you'd think the natural response is, yes, how lovely that you want to follow me as well. I mean, that's what I'd think. Great, another one's coming in. Jesus says, actually, uh, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Many people make quick decisions. I want to follow Jesus. He looks great. And Jesus warns people in that situation, have you really thought about what it means? Have you really thought about what it means to follow me? You see, he wasn't like the Pharisees who was just saying, you can follow in my footsteps and I'll teach you some wise things and I'll give you my take on what the Old Testament law is. Uh, Jesus says actually following me is very different. Um, It's even worse than being part of the animal kingdom. You see, foxes, well, what do they have? Um, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. In other words, they have a home that they can go back to and find protection and shelter in. Actually, I have no home. That's the one you're following in this world. You're following a homeless man. You're following a person who does not call this world their own. Is that what you want to do? Uh, Or do you want this world to be your home? You see, this is what Jesus is challenging us about. It's what he was challenging that follower about. If you want to call me the master, realise that you're following someone who is going to another home. And Luke highlights where that home is because he says he's been resolutely set now to go to Jerusalem because he's on a journey to heaven. That was Jesus' home. The cost of following Jesus is you will actually say this is no longer my home. It's a very powerful statement because we love our homes. We love our houses. We love our property. Is that what you live for? Or will you let go of it and follow me who has no home? Well, that's the first disciple. He came up to Jesus. The second one, Jesus, comes to him. Now, earlier in Luke's Gospel, he's approached another man to invite him to follow. Do you remember? It's Levi. He's the tax collector. And what was Levi's response? Levi gets up, leaves everything, follows. Well, not so this time. Now, let's have a look. Verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, yes, I understand it's important that you bury your father. Go and do that. Well, no, it's not what he said, is it? He said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, why does he say that? It seems so rude. It seems so uncaring. I mean, isn't Jesus the kind and compassionate one? The request is a very normal request. And in that culture, one of the most important things a son could do 
is prepare and do the burial of their father. And let me say, nothing has really changed from a cultural point of view in our day. You think about if you've got a father, the opportunity to organise their funeral, how significant that would be. Now, I can't. My father died when I was only about two or three. Uh, One of the things I do think about is my mother's death and what that will be like. Uh, She's an incredible lady. And Jesus says, actually, let the dead bury their own dead. What is he saying? Uh, Some commentators have said that it's possible that the son is saying, I need to wait, Jesus, until dad dies and then I'll bury him. In other words, um, he's not dying but he's old. He will die, so after he's died, I will come and follow you. That's one possibility. Another is that literally the funeral's on tomorrow. He's got to go and take it. Another possibility is his dad is dying. Um, Many of us will know the reality that people who are in serious medical trauma can be told you've only got days to live, weeks to live. And so the son knows his dad is going to die and he wants to wait around until that happens. Uh, You know what, we're not quite sure. I suspect it's probably the latter that the dad is dying and he wants to be there when he does and so take the funeral, be involved. But in this stunning, absolute way, Jesus says, actually, following me takes precedence. Following me is more important than burying your father. Now, it's not a literal saying when he says, let the dead bury the dead, because I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but a dead person can't actually bury a dead person. Um, He's speaking metaphorically at that level. The language is here to cause us to think. Now, if you've got your Bibles, have a look at Ezekiel. Sorry, um, I'm slightly behind on my uh, slides. Um, There's two examples in the Old Testament which help us understand this saying, let the dead bury the dead. Now, Ezekiel 24 is the first. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context. Ezekiel is sent as a prophet to a nation in rebellion who are, if I can use this language, spiritually dead. And to illustrate their deadness, the Lord God says this to Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. That's his wife. It's a very significant thing about to happen. Yet do not lament or shed any tears or weep. Groan quietly. Do not mourn for the dead. In other words, Um, Your wife is about to die. You can privately mourn her, but not publicly. The weeping, the shedding of tears would have been the public expression in that culture. Don't do it. Groan inwardly, quietly. Keep your turban fastened and your sandals on your feet. In other words, just look like you're going about your normal business. Do not cover the lower part of your face, i.e. that you're in mourning, or eat customary food of mourners. Ezekiel was told, don't mourn for the dead. Let the dead bury the dead. You see, he was to illustrate in his own life the reality of God's people that they were dead and he was not to mourn for them. They needed judgment. Jeremiah 16 says the same thing. Don't mourn over the dead of Israel because God has withdrawn 
his blessing from them. Why does he say this? This is what I think is happening. Which family is more important for us? Is it our own family or is it Jesus' family? Your nuclear family or the family of God's people? And I think what Jesus is doing here is teaching that family comes first, our heavenly family, and our nuclear family actually comes second. Let me put that up on the screen. Um, Following Jesus will mean our family comes second and his family comes first. You see, what he is modelling here and teaching here is that when you join and follow Jesus, you join a new family and that family takes priority over our nuclear, physical, earthly family. Have a think with me about um, Jesus in his own nuclear family. I'm at Luke 8, just one chapter before. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. And so you've got inside Jesus with his spiritual family, if I can use those words, outside you've got his familial family, his nuclear family. Someone told him, outside your brother, mother are standing. They're wanting to see you. He replied, my brother, my mother, well, who are they? They're the ones who hear God's word and put into practice. In other words, they're the ones here. Uh, they have the priority. And you see this in the third counting the cost follower that we're going to come to. You see, following Jesus means that we put his family first and our family second. Does that mean we ignore our family? Absolutely not. Uh, Let me give you a few thoughts on this. Uh, What if I'm married to someone who isn't a Christian? Is Jesus saying that I leave him? No. Very clear. Uh, You come to 1 Corinthians 7 where this very particular situation is taught about and Paul says if you're a believer and your partner isn't and they want to stay in the marriage, stay with them. And I would encourage all people here who are married whose spouse is not a Christian You stay there and in fact you keep loving them and demonstrating and modelling Jesus to them so that they come to know Jesus for themselves. That's what Jesus would want. But Paul says that if they want to leave you, uh, then you are free to let them leave. And I've seen both realities. I've seen spouses who have been Jesus to their spouse, having been converted and their spouse has been converted Uh, as they've seen the reality of Jesus and the testimony has been powerful and brought their spouse to the point of conversion. I've seen the other. We're following Jesus where a spouse has put Jesus first, has meant they gave up alcohol, has meant they've given up issues in their life that Jesus would not have wanted them to be doing. And the spouse has turned around and thought, I'm out of here. I don't like this and they've left them. Jesus' family comes before our own family. It means with our family life we fit our family activities and life into the church family and not the reverse. Let me just speak to parents for a moment. Um, What this means I think for us as parents is this. 
This world, I think, idolises the family. It's one of the Australian idols. Family. Family is most important to Australians. Now, they have a broad definition of family. Let's leave that. But our children are a god. We worship them in the sense of we want what the world thinks is best for them. Education, experiences, all of this. That's what we've got to give them. That is not actually that important. What you've got to give them is Jesus. And what every family as they grow up has to, if I can say as parents, teach their children is that we belong actually to a more important family, which is the family of God. And there's some stuff we won't do as family because we belong to a more important family, which is a heavenly family, which is the family we will be in forever. And so as parents, we made decisions. There were certain things we just didn't do, not because they're wrong, kids' parties, uh, sport and stuff, they just didn't fit our heavenly family. And we resolved we weren't going to make them compete. And we missed some stuff because the priority was actually being part of our heavenly family. And you know what? I was thinking about this last night. My kids don't realise what they didn't get to go to. They just didn't get to go to it. There's no kind of scars. Oh, I didn't get to go to this, Dad. That's just ruined my life. Um, what they learnt was actually our church family was so important. And being part of the family is so important. And let me say, church family is not just nuclear families. Church family is singles, marrieds, widows. It's a whole conglomeration of people who are brought together, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, free nor slave, rich nor poor, black nor white, you think of the way the world chops and divides us up, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus' family comes first. And he says here, even to the point of a funeral, let the dead bury the dead. You go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. You go out and proclaim there is a new family that takes precedence over all other families. Uh, there is a life and a hope and a forgiveness that you have discovered and you are now proclaim. Well, let's have a look at the third one. Still, another one said, I'll follow you. Now, brave man. <laughs> He's already seen two of them shot down. I'll have a go. But Lord, um, can you first let me go back and say goodbye to my family? Oh, that's a lovely idea. Give your mum a kiss, say hi from me and uh, I'll see you tomorrow. That's not the text, is it? There was another man in the Old Testament who wanted to say goodbye to his mum and dad. Do you know who it was? It was Elisha. Elijah, the great prophet who called down fire from heaven, had an apprentice, Elisha. And Elijah's famous because he's one of the two people in the Bible who never dies. 
Enoch, straight to heaven. Elisha, straight to heaven. And Elijah has a prophet underneath him in training, Elisha. And when Elisha signs up, Elisha says, can I go back and uh, say goodbye to uh, mum and dad? And um, Elijah says, yeah, that's okay. Go and say goodbye. See you soon. This guy, I'm sure he probably knew about Elijah, says, uh, can I go back and say goodbye to mum and dad, give mum a kiss on the cheek? Um, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. No one who puts his hand to the plough and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus says no. What you see here is that Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it's no compromise. It requires a focus, a single-minded devotion. Um, One can't follow after two things at once. Jesus demands a new and radical. And you see, unlike Israel who turned and went back to Egypt in their minds, he says, you can't do that. Unlike Lot's wife who wanted to turn around and look at Sodom, you can't do that. Uh, When ploughing in Palestine, a backward look might easily knock one off course in the rocky soil. And so if you were ploughing the soil, you would have one hand that would guide the plough and another would go the ox. And your eyes would have to look straight ahead to where you were directing the plough. Because if you turned around, there was great danger you could hit the rock and go for six. And Jesus is saying here in three incredibly challenging ways. Do you want to follow me? Do you want to follow me? And they've seen the incredible power and beauty of him, if I can put it in those words, that he transforms lives, he heals the sick, he gives life to the hopeless and hope and forgiveness. Do you want to follow me? Okay, here's the deal. Let go of everything. Let go of it all. Do not look back, come. But before you do, have you counted the cost? He speaks with this uncompromising nature. It requires a single-minded devotion as disciples that we need to know that even family duties are secondary to one's commitment to Jesus. It means I must break with the past and align with God for the future. The task's greatness requires a disciple to have a greater dedication than even the Old Testament prophets who went before. Following Jesus is a hard walk. But I want to finish by saying it's worth it. Have a look at verse 20 of chapter 10. I haven't dealt with the mission. I thought I want to deal with this one topic well. Because you might be sitting here thinking, man, can anyone do this? Well, he sends them out on mission now and they come back rejoicing and they go, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. In other words, God worked his power through them in this incredible way. He said, and Jesus replied, actually, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing's going to harm you. You see, you're now with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. You're on his team. However, 
Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I want to finish on this note. I remember being amazed by Jesus and confronted by him simultaneously. And it took me six months of spiritual journey of being amazed but yet scared. And it was like there was a party going on in this room but the door was closed, there were no windows that I could look in but yet the sounds were happy. And the only way I'd know what it was like in that room was if I opened the door up and went in. But I knew if I went in, the door would be closed and I would have to live in that room and not the room that I was in, which when I was honest was a room of sadness, of emptiness, of hopelessness. By faith, I had to go forward and trust Jesus when he says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. But I realised if I wanted that, I had to let go of everything. Career, my name amongst my friends, my aspirations, and give them to Jesus. And what I discovered was when I let go, having counted the cost, I found life. And my name is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I'm part of the family that is forever. And I have a meaning and purpose in this world being able to offer people life and hope and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And when I let go and walk through that room, I had the greatest surprise in my life. In the words of C.S. Lewis, I was surprised by joy and friends that's what you find when you count the cost and you let go and today do you need to let go of stuff do you need to come to the Lord Jesus have you counted the cost of what it means to follow him let's have some time just to be quiet what is God speaking into your heart and mind Have you been trying to hang on to the world and Jesus? Come to him this day and let go of the world and all its false trinkets and values and take hold of Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe you need to come back and do it again. I'm going to leave a moment to pray and be quiet and I'm going to lead us in prayer. If you want to pray with me, pray along. Dear God, I thank you for Jesus, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I let go of my life and I take hold of Jesus because I want to follow him, whatever the cost, because he is the one who is worthy. He is the one I love. Give me strength by your spirit to follow faithfully as part of your forever family. 
And may I live for him and his kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's um, stand and let's sing. Bruce is right. How do we do this? How do we live? It's only by his power and by his grace that we can because he is mighty to save. We are helpless without him. So let's stand and let's sing of the Saviour who is mighty to save. It's our offering.